Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created me in my inmost, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well my frame is not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are the bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. Well, it is my privilege to introduce today's speaker. John is currently on vacation. Um, and so he wrote this as an introduction, uh, so I'm going to read it now for you. Uh, today's speaker is Dr. Edgar Clark, better known to us as Trey. Rather than talk about his extensive pastoral and academic credentials, I'd rather introduce him with what is far more important. Trey is a loving husband and father, a good and listening friend and someone who takes very seriously loving God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. In introducing Trey, it is best to say, here is a good man who will speak from his voice, a, uh, from his a voice shaped by his love for God, his word, and everyone lucky enough to cross paths with him. Would you join me in welcoming Dr. Trey Clark? Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. Well, good morning, FCC. It is a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, my heart is full this morning. I've been so blessed by the worship, the prayer, and the song, and the music, and 
I feel a little good about, about myself with that introduction. So uh, I have to tell, tell Pastor John a special thank you. And thank you, uh, Pastor Sean, for uh, being willing to read that. Well, would you join me in prayer as we turn our attention to uh, the scripture that was read for us this morning? Gracious God, I pray that in the midst of many words this morning, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most basic yet important lessons I've learned in the last 20 years of life and ministry is this. The spiritual journey is a deeply human journey. Unfortunately, this has not been an easy lesson for me to learn. I often separate the two from each other. For example, I grew up thinking that to be a spiritual person meant minimizing my human emotions and needs. I lived with unprocessed issues beneath the surface of my life that I didn't want to give any attention to. And even now, I struggle with admitting the ways in which I can give myself to work in some addictive ways. And yet with counseling and close friends and mentors, I've slowly began to take some steps toward integrating my spiritual health with my emotional health, my physical health, and my relational health. I've learned that it's dangerous to not attend to the fullness of our humanity on our spiritual journey. We cannot bypass our embodiment in the pursuit of God. If we do, it will often lead to abuse, burnout, and profound conflict. Fortunately, the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the church, offers ancient wisdom to help bring these two things together, the spiritual journey and the human journey. In the book of Psalms, we encounter a range of human experiences, betrayal and fidelity, economic injustice and care for the marginalized, displacement from land and celebration of God's good creation. And we also find a range of human emotions in the book of Psalms, joy and sorrow, hope and despair, raw anger and deep peace. And all of these varied human experiences and emotions are directed toward God as part of the spiritual journey. The Psalms recognize that the spiritual journey is a deeply human journey. This is seen in a special way in Psalm 139, which we'll focus on today. This psalm is traditionally attributed to David, the shepherd boy turned king of Israel. And it's divided into four stanzas or sections, each stanza having about six verses. Now, typically quite a bit of attention is given to those first three stanzas of the psalm. And we'll consider those today. But I'd like to start by drawing our attention to the often overlooked last section of the psalm because I think this gives us a clue into the heart of the psalm as a whole. The final stanza begins at verse 19, and it reads, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. 
They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How do we make sense of David's words? Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? What is going on here? Now, this isn't the typical prayer that I would offer on a Sunday morning in worship. Here we see the psalmist pleading to God to destroy the wicked. Some scholars suggest the psalmist wants vindication because his enemies are accusing him of unfaithfulness. Regardless, it's clear that the psalmist believes that his enemies are God's enemies, and he wants God to do something about it, namely wipe them out. Now, given how much violence has been done in the name of God in the past and in the present, we have to reflect on these verses carefully, especially verses 19 through 22. Often they have been skipped in the reading of the psalm because of the difficulties that they raise. And I've been guilty of this myself. It's a little easier if you skip that section. But more and more, I'm convinced that faithful reading of Scripture means we have to wrestle with the less than comfortable parts. And this includes David's plea for the destruction of the wicked and his expression of absolute hatred for those who rebel against God's ways. Here's what I want to propose. I want to propose that these words are not prescriptive of how we should relate to our enemies, but they are prescriptive of how we should relate to God. In other words, Psalm 139 doesn't endorse violence against our enemies, but it does endorse brutal honesty before God. The psalmist offers his full self, even his raw anger to God. David understands that the spiritual journey invites us to bring the fullness of our human experience before God. All too often, we simply try to suppress or minimize or ignore parts of ourselves that we're uncomfortable with, our lustful self, our controlling self, our angry self, our manipulative self, our workaholic self. We struggle to be honest about all of who we are and offer it to God. And the danger, the danger is that failing to name and understand and offer the various parts of ourselves to God often leads to a fragmented life, a divided life, a broken, deceptive, less than authentic life. The issues beneath the surface of our life are never dealt with. And as a result, they enact violence on our souls and on the lives of those around us. Just think of how much undealt with personal issues cause conflict in our families, injustice in our communities, and polarization 
in our nation. What is not exposed cannot be healed. What is not transformed in us is transmitted to others. The Canadian psychologist David Benner puts it like this, quote, the truth of the self is the whole self. If we attempt to eliminate the rejected parts, they simply increase in their power to keep us fragmented. Wholeness comes from inclusion, not rejection. Only when all the parts of us, even those parts we like to hide, only when all the parts of us are welcomed to the table in the family room of the self, do we ever have any chance of being the whole person that we truly are, end quote. God welcomes our whole self. This doesn't mean God doesn't want to challenge or change parts of ourselves. For example, the psalmist recognizes that there are some offensive or wicked ways in his life that need to be revealed and transformed. And this starts with surrendering his complete self to God. Why is this so important? Because when we offer our full self before God, we have the opportunity to see the Spirit transform our pain so that we don't simply pass on our pain to others. But how do we get there? What does it mean to embody a whole or integrated life today? How can we bring our total self to God as well as trusted friends and counselors and guides? Not our curated Instagram self. Not our Sunday morning church self. Not our job interview self. But our complex, messy, real self before God. David was able to be brutally honest before God in verses 19 through 24 because he had learned some things about God in verses 1 through 18. Psalm 139 offers us wisdom into how to have a whole integrated life with God. Not a perfect life, but an honest life. The kind of life that can contribute to a more just and whole world. And it offers this wisdom to us in poetry, poetry that expands our understanding of God in at least three ways. And in the rest of our time, we'll look at each of these ways in the three stanzas that begin the song. And then at the end, we'll return to that final stanza to engage in a kind of prayer practice together. So in the first stanza of the psalm, we learn that the path to a whole life involves embracing that God knows us. David begins, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. The word know from the Hebrew yada is used repeatedly in the psalm to speak of the intimate, personal, thorough ways in which God knows us. In other words, there's nothing to hide before God because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And who is this God that knows? David uses the covenantal name for God, Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel, and the God of Hagar. You remember her? Hagar was the enslaved African woman in the book of Genesis 
while excluded and alone in the wilderness, she named God. Remember this. She named God the God who sees. In my sanctified imagination, I like to think that David was meditating on this oral tradition as he was writing this psalm. Like Hagar, he speaks of a God who sees and knows in a profoundly personal manner. Our sitting and rising, our going and coming, our speech in silence. And he'll, he'll say later on even, God's eyes see our unformed body. Now, for some of us, hearing about how totally God knows us doesn't feel like good news. It can feel kind of uncomfortable. This is kind of big brother-ish. God sees everything. This feels invasive, probing, a kind of suffocating knowledge. But the God that we find in this psalm is a God of love. And as a chaplain friend shared with me recently, we cannot be defensive. We cannot be defensive when we are truly loved. In the presence of God's genuine love, our defenses can drop. Our mask can come off. And our fear of intimacy can be released. God's loving knowledge is safe, welcoming. Like David, we can be open to this God because God already knows me. God already knows us and yet loves us still. However, in the second stanza, starting at verse 7, we see that the path to this whole integrated life that David is after embraces not only that God knows us, but that God is with us in all things. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, God is with you. All right, we're going to do it one more time, one more time. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, God is with you. In the ancient Near East, gods were often understood as localized, confined to particular regions. But here we learn that the God of Israel is not a regional God. David depicts God as present in every domain of human and non-human existence. The heavens in the north, the depths of the earth, Sheol in the south, the wings of the dawn where the sun rises in the west and the far side of the Mediterranean Sea in the east. God, David says, is in the light, and God is even in the darkness. Where can we go from God's spirit? Where can we flee from God's presence? The psalmist answers, nowhere. And yet, and yet, there are some seasons of life when it can be difficult to sense God's presence. We can find ourselves in what the 16th century Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is quite a complex phenomenon. And while I have experienced the dark night in my own journey, I am by no means an expert on it. However, to simplify, we can describe the dark night of the soul as a season of purging in the spiritual journey. 
a season in which we're freed from our attachments and addictions that prevent us from fully and freely loving God, others, and ourselves. During the dark night, we often cannot see or experience God in the way that we used to. It might be a painful season, but really what marks the dark night is that it's an unclear, confusing, foggy season. Previous understandings of God and church and faith seem incomplete and unsatisfying. Spiritual practices that once brought joy seem dull and boring. The excitement and pleasure of our earlier Christian journey becomes a distant memory. This is what Mother Teresa, the great missionary among the poor in Calcutta, India, experienced for decades, actually for decades, according to documents that were revealed after her passing. Other Psalms make it clear that David also experienced the dark night of the soul. And even Jesus, y'all, even Jesus seemed to experience a dark night of the soul. You remember how he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've come to believe that the dark night of the soul is far more common than we often talk about in the church. We tend to fixate on what Barbara Brown Taylor calls a solar spirituality, a solar spirituality. A faith that is all about finding God in the sunshine of success and self-fulfillment. But we also need a spirituality of the sunset. One that finds God even in the darkness. The dark night is a normal means by which our life with God can actually be deepened. And among other things, it invites us to rely less on feelings of God's nearness, and more on the fact of God's nearness. In the dark night, we come to know afresh that all of our journey, our ups and our downs, our highs and our lows can be offered to God. We come to know know that we can accept where we are on our spiritual journey, even if it's not where we want to be, and be sensitive to God's invitation to trust as we move forward. Everything belongs. We can say with the psalmist, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This leads us to the third stanza of the psalm. And here there's so much that we could give our attention to, but let's focus on verses 13 and 14. They read, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully, that is reverently, that word fearfully is really reverently, because I am reverently and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The path to a whole life involves embracing that God created us special. Before we did anything right and before we did anything wrong, before we were known by our father and before we were known by our mother, 
God, like an artisan, was knitting us together in our mother's womb. Whenever I think of knitting, I think of Sister Lorraine Axton. Now, y'all don't know Sister Lorraine. She's a dear woman who was part of the previous congregation that my wife and I were part of in Torrance. When uh, Sister Lorraine learned that our daughter Kalia was to be born, she began knitting together this special blanket just for her. And she did this, y'all, in her 90s. I soon learned, I was kind of feeling special, and I learned that Lorraine had done this for a lot of people. Y'all probably got some people like this in the church, right? Knitting takes thoughtfulness, precision, and patience. This image of God, God as knitter, shows God's tender, loving care, God's intent on creating us with love and grace and attention as special made in his image. Now, this isn't meant to lead us to praise ourselves as much as it's meant to turn our gaze toward our maker. God created us and established us as valuable, worthy, and significant. Now, this both resonates with our culture in the West, and it challenges our culture in the West. It resonates with U.S. culture's celebration of individuality and uniqueness. In the U.S., we, we want to be special, right? We want to feel different than anyone else. But the verses challenge, they challenge the common notion that we are ultimately the ones who can establish our uniqueness. Often our uniqueness is sought through struggling to distinguish ourselves through our success or our style or our image. And we can find ourselves exhausted as we're caught in this never-ending pursuit of making and remaking ourselves to find value in the eyes of others. The psalmist has chosen a different path. He accepts with confidence that his value is something to be received rather than achieved. I praise you because I am reverently and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. For all kinds of reasons, I know that these words would be quite difficult for many of us to say, to say and truly believe that they are true about ourselves. But they are true. They are true. Our worth is secure as children of God. Our worth is not revoked when we can no longer fit in the same size clothes. It's not revoked when we don't get the job of our dreams. It's not revoked when we are less than perfect parents or grandparents. It's not revoked when we no longer have the position that once gave us a sense of respect. It's not revoked when our health begins to fade. Hear this, sisters and brothers. There is an irreversible, irrevocable stamp of approval on your life that God has given you. And nobody can take it away. You are special and unique in the sight of God. And embracing this reality 
enables us to live through the various stages and seasons of life with honesty before God and others. We can offer our total self to God in every season because our ultimate identity is not on the line. It is not in jeopardy. It is secure. And this is what we see David pursued. And this is what we're invited into. Just imagine how an integrated, whole way of life, whole way of being might bring change into our lives? How might this help us humbly admit our wrong in relationships? How might this prevent us from developing secrets that ultimately destroy the things that we say we care about the most? And how might this transform the raw anger and hate in our political life that so often leads to profound division and conflict? God invites us to embrace the spiritual journey as a deeply human journey, to present all the different parts of ourselves before God. I'd like to end inviting us to engage in a kind of prayer practice as a way of moving into this whole integrated way of being that we see in the psalm. And the prayer practice is based on the final prayer of the psalm. The prayer is found in verses 23 to 24. And I'll tell you, I've been sitting with these verses for the last couple of a week, couple of weeks. And God has just been meeting me in them in a powerful and meaningful way. Sometimes showing me some stuff I didn't want to see, but meeting me with loving care and direction. The verses read, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want us to pray three prayers based on these words. The first one is, God, search my life. The second one, God, show me my struggles. And the third one, God, strengthen me to follow you. Now, this prayer practice may be a bit uncomfortable for us. However, I invite you to participate and engage in as much as you are able. In the first part, I want to invite us to welcome God to search and examine our lives. Of course, God knows us fully, but we want to open ourselves to God. If you're not in a place where you can can pray this prayer, this is a difficult prayer to pray. That's fine. I just... I invite you to be present in this moment. And my encouragement is this. The desire to desire to be open to God is a good place to start. So I invite you just even right now to take a few deep breaths. If you want to open up your hands, open your palms, you can do that. Let us be present in this moment. Let's take a moment to quietly pray, God, search my life.
Amen. The second prayer that I want to invite us to pray is found in verse 24. We'll ask God to show us any struggles or sins in our lives that we might need to attend to. Now, for some of us, it is quite easy to focus on our struggles. We were, but others of us, we find it difficult. Uh, we don't want to admit our struggles. And so for those of you who might find it easy to focus on your struggles, to fixate on your work-in-progress self, I invite you to remember that your struggles do not define you. God does. And for those of you who find it challenging to even take that step toward admitting that you have struggles, you have issues, I invite you to remember this is not about condemnation or shame. To echo one pastor, God doesn't show us our struggles to shame us, but to set us free. And so with this in mind, I invite you to ask God to reveal any offensive way in you. Let's take a moment to pray. God, show me my struggles. Amen. Now, in this third and final prayer, we'll ask God to strengthen and guide us in the way everlasting. Some scholars translate the phrase the way everlasting as the ancient way. It's a way that's congruent with the character and the commands of God. Ultimately, we might say it's a way that reflects Jesus, the way the truth, and the life. We cannot follow God's way in our own strength. We need God and others. So as we end, let's take a moment to pray, God, strengthen me to follow you. God, thank you for knowing us and loving us the same. Thank you for never leaving us alone on our journey. And thank you for giving us irrevocable value as your children. May you give us the courage to live our lives fully before you in every season. And may it bring you glory and contribute to the love, the justice, and the peace that our world so desperately needs. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.